This week's episode is about Hack Green Nuclear Bunker in Cheshire. No, I'm not in the depths of the bunker. Despite these echoes, I've simply learned how to apply cool sound effects to my audio. Um, I have recorded in the past in a bunker. If you look back to, I think it was very early in the podcast archive, there's a, an episode about Barnton Quarry Bunker in Edinburgh. And I did um, interview one of the guys who runs the bunker down there. And I got a fright down there, actually. I'm, I'm such a nervous wreck. Um, I got a fright down there. If you listen to the episode, you'll see uh, Grant Moore um, was showing me around the bunker. And we were talking and I was recording the interview for this podcast. And then Barton Quarry is, is black inside. It was currently being refurbished. But when I was there, absolutely black because it was burned. It was set on fire. And it was... um. A horrific fire. The heat down there was so intense that uh, when the firemen arrived, they could hear explosions. They were standing at the foot of the tunnel and they could hear all these explosions. And it was the metal on the wall expanding in the heat and snapping huge chunks of concrete off with it. So the place was black, ruined inside. But, you know, I was with Grant and we had torches. It was fine. And then from the black depths of the bunker came a terrifying noise. Loki was the resident bunker dog. The place, of course, has been broken into, attacked, set on fire, so it's quite reasonable that the guys working there have Loki to help secure the scene. But um, to come across Loki in the dark when you're backed into a corner, <laughs> it was quite scary. So I also got a bit of a fright in Hack Green. Uh, we'll t- I'll tell you about that in the episode. So let's have a little history of Hack Green. I'll take you on a tour of the place. And I'll get my husband to tell us how he got a fright down there, even though he is a big, logical man who doesn't ever admit to having any emotions or anything like that. Even he got a fright down in Hat Green Bunker. I decided to do an episode on Hat Green this week as I got a lovely message from a new patron. During the week, uh, Becca Westby joined my Patreon. Thank you, Becca. And she sent me an email through Patreon which told the story of how she came to be so interested in nuclear war. And she's given me permission to read it to you. So here's an extract from Becca's email of how she came to my podcast and where her nuclear interest came from. I moved to a new high school halfway through my teens after my parents got divorced but was busy having a mental breakdown at the time so didn't stay at the new school for long. While I was there, however, 
We watched the first half of a film that I never got to see the second half of. A film that came with quite a serious warning from teacher beforehand about its graphic nature. A film where a young couple are sat in a car on a hill overlooking Sheffield. That was literally all I knew about it for years. Well, that and that I wanted to watch the second half of it. But nobody knew what film it was when I described it to them. I don't think we even got up to the part where the bomb goes off, so I had little context to give people. Fast forward a decade, and I've almost given up on my film. Then I discover the Hack Green nuclear bunker is in the same county as I am. Oh, a new research project. So I'm walking round their displays, and imagine my euphoria when I get to the viewing room and my film is playing. I finally had a name for it, and soon afterwards, the Threads DVD. So there was Becca, giving a snippet of Threads at school, and then never able to see the second half of it. Didn't even know what it was called, didn't know what it was about, and of course... I assume these were in the days before Google, before the internet, so all you could do really would be ask people, have you ever seen a film where, does this ring a bell? Do you know this film where, and everyone just thought, what? A film where a couple are in Sheffield? Uh, no. So Becca knew that she loved this film, it got her hooks right into her, but she wasn't ever able to track it down because she didn't know what it was called. And then one day, there she is, wandering through Hack Green Bunker, which, as her email says, has a a tiny little cinema in it. And there, flickering on the screen, was that film she'd been trying to find (laughs) ever since her childhood. Good old threads, of course. And it was Hack Green that brought it to her. When I read Becca's email, I thought, it's time we did an email, it's time we did a podcast episode about Hack Green. So thank you, Becca, for signing up to our Patreon, of course, and thank you for inspiring us to do our episode this week on Hack Green Nuclear Bunker, which is in Nantwich in Cheshire. It's strange that it's in Nantwich, because when I visited, uh, I'd never been to Nantwich before, I didn't know what to expect. It's a lovely, it's probably a town, but it looks like a village, because it looks, the part I saw at least, looks quaint and pretty. So we drove across to Nantwich, or drove down to Nantwich, So we didn't explore on foot, we just drove through it to get to the bunker, but the bit we saw, it seemed lovely, like a typical old-fashioned English village. I remember a pond or a lake. I remember ducks waddling about. I remember seeing lots of country pubs with hanging baskets outside. It was just pretty. Nantwich was pretty. And you drive through Nantwich, you drive through all this lovely English floral prettiness and you keep going and you leave the town behind you leave it behind and you enter proper countryside you enter a country lane called french lane and there you are even the name of the street or the lane is pretty french lane how lovely it's not called i don't know duck splatter lane it's french lane and you drive along it through fields again more english rural loveliness And as you're driving through these lush green fields, you see something very alien, which shouldn't belong there. You see lots of wire fencing and antenna poking their way above the bushes and fields. And you think, that looks a bit out of place. And you drive further away from prettiness and further towards this 
nest of spindly antenna, which of course is a giveaway that you're <laughs> approaching a, a bunker. Um, a lot of nuclear bunkers in Britain are deliberately disguised, but the bristly antenna would always be a giveaway that something strange is going on down there. So you leave behind all the loveliness, and as you get closer, you see fencing, you see the car park, and there is the bunker. Not quite as menacing as it would have been during the Cold War, because this one, of course, has a caramel brown sign outside saying, Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. For those outside Britain, those brown signs mean this is a tourist attraction. As I said, I was staying in Blackpool at this time, and Blackpool is full of those brown signs on the approach to Blackpool saying, Blackpool Tower, uh, Pleasure Beach, Sandcastle, uh, North Shore. And it means loveliness, it means welcoming, it means it's a tourist destination. And now, those same brown tourist signs mark the site of nuclear bunkers. So I assume the place looked far more menacing and desolate in the Cold War. But of course, as we'll discuss later in the episode, Hack Green is now a tourist attraction. It's a bunker, it's a museum, it's open to the public. It wants you to go in, buy a ticket, explore. It is a tourist attraction. Maybe that detracts from the menace, but the fact is it needs to pull in the punters. It needs to, of course, get money in. It needs to keep surviving. If we didn't have people going in and paying their money, then maybe the bunker wouldn't be open to us. So bunker people like me who are sticklers for things being the way they were, or the way I imagine that they were in the Cold War, might not like the nice welcoming tourist attraction signs, but the fact is without tourists and without the welcoming nature of the bunker, the bunker might not be there for us. So we leave lovely Nantwich and its flowers and its lake and its pubs and we go towards the steely spindly antenna and we enter the bunker. And Hack Green isn't as menacing on its approach as other bunkers might be. Barnton Quarry, for example, that I talked about, which is burned. Uh, the Anstruther Bunker, which I visited and I will do an episode on later. When you enter those bunkers, they both have a long, sloping tunnel, which takes you down, down, down into the bunker. And as you walk down this long tunnel, you can feel the air starting to cool. There's a definite chill as you descend into the bunker. Hack Green uh, doesn't have that. It's got a different type of entrance, a different style. So when you enter Hack Green Bunker, you you step over a cat. When I went there, there was a cat lying in the threshold, um, getting a bit of a suntan. So you step over a cat, and when you enter, when you buy your ticket and go through the turnstile, you're immediately in the, the cafe and gift shop. So again, any sense of menace or claustrophobia or any sense that you're entering a sinister area is taken away by the tourist resort signs and the cat and the cafe. And the cafe is very cheery. It has, or when I was there, it had uh, bunting. It was playing music, I believe 1940s music. And there was a lovely lady behind the counter who served us some coffees and some crunchies. All very welcoming. And again, part of me thought, well, this isn't very scary. I like my bunkers eerie and sinister. And um, I spoke to Lucy, who's the, the manager, the owner of the bunker, about that, about that kind of contradiction. I want the bunker to be sinister and terrifying, but at the same time, 
it has to at least be welcome. It has to have a cafe. It has to have a gift shop because one, it has to attract people there. And two, selling stuff in the cafe, selling stuff in the gift shop is another source of income for the bunker. What people like me have to remember is that these places have to make money. They have to appeal to weirdos like me, but also normal people who might have the kids with them and want a day out. Stop by the bunker, learn a bit about Cold War history, and yes, we can still get some cakes and biscuits and perhaps some cool magnets and toys from the gift shop. The place has to make money. If it didn't make money, perhaps it wouldn't be there. Or at least perhaps it wouldn't be open to the public. It wouldn't be there as a museum. But first, what was the purpose of Hat Green? Well, like most British bunkers, it went through different uses. A lot of our bunkers, even those used during the Cold War, were originally built in the Second World War and would, of course, brought back into use and often reinforced or hardened, as they say. So, like others, Hat Green went through different uses. It was originally uh, used for radar, and then later in the Cold War, it would have housed government officials charged with running the region in a post-nuclear Britain. Bunkers, of course, had different purposes. Indeed, sometimes there were purposes, but no bunkers. Consider the local councils we've talked about in previous episodes who declared themselves in the 1980s nuclear-free zones, saying they would have nothing to do with civil defence and preparing for nuclear war because it's futile and it's misleading and it's dishonest and it's arguably a big whopping waste of money. And so they refused to build bunkers or to modify space in their town hall basements. So Cold War Britain, it was a bit, when it came to building bunkers, it was all a bit higgledy-piggledy. We never really had a neat system of one, here is a need, and two, here is a purpose-built bunker to meet that need. So Hack Green went through different phases, different purposes, but it begins to get interesting as far as I'm concerned in the latter Cold War when the Home Office took over and made it a regional seat of government. And we've looked at the RSG system in a previous episode called Survive Beside the Seaside. But in a mega quick recap, the RSG system, regional seat of government, saw bunkers built or adapted or planned but never actually made across the UK. And if nuclear war came, each of these designated bunkers would house local government officials, would be headed by a cabinet minister, and they'd also include BBC staff, scientists, people from fire and police, etc. And they would have to run their little chunk of Britain, acting like a, a tiny little Whitehall, with your politicians and your civil servants and your advisors and your experts. And they would run their region until London, central government, was once again able to function, if ever. So let's go a walk through the bunker. You enter into the cafe and gift shop, and it's a cheerful place. Again, Hat Green do this differently from other bunkers I've visited, where the sense of menace is piled onto you from the start. That's part of the experience, I suppose. But Hat Green welcomes you in with clouds of cappuccino steam, bunting and biscuits. 
When I visited, I think it was March, and it was midweek, say a quiet Tuesday or Wednesday. So the cafe was empty. We sat down and we had a coffee and a crunchy. Mainly because I like chocolate and I can't walk past a rack of biscuits and chocolate bars, but also because I was slightly nervous. I sometimes suffer panic attacks, which are triggered by being in an enclosed space. We sat down and I got my breath and tried to relax, because whenever I visit a bunker, one half of my brain is raring to go exploring, but the other half is saying, Julie, you're going to be down there, way, way down there, way underground, and what if the lights go out? What if the doors jam? What if a bunch of school kids come piling in and back you into a corner of a tiny, 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 airless underground room? So we stopped for a coffee and a crunchy. Indeed, I visited a bunker before which actually had a bar underground. And I do admit that I chased away any creeping panic with a good few G&Ts. So I was a bit on edge when we arrived at Hat Green and I asked the woman behind the counter if the bunker was empty on that day because I was dreading being crowded and jostled by people down there. But at the same time, which shows how irrational panic is, at the same time I was scared of there not being anyone down there. I was scared of it just being me and David and the ghosts of a nuclear war which never happened. But she told me, yeah, there were a couple of other people in, and that relaxed me, and so we drank up our coffees, and we went through the doors and down into the bunker. We didn't see any other visitors that day. Down in the depths of the bunker, occasionally we'd hear them. A door would open, or we'd catch a fragment of chatter from someone, but we didn't see any of these people. And that is the way I like my bunkers, when I'm not panicking. Hack Green needs to get the tourists in, of course. It needs to earn money through its tourism. Great. But let me be a hypocrite and say I was glad that those people weren't there during my visit. Because I wanted to wander the long, endless corridors and see the silent dormitory and imagine that the place is prepped and ready to receive its staff. I wanted to imagine that they were all on their way just now enjoying their last minute of fresh air above ground before they would all descend into the bunker, find their desks, meet their new colleagues, their final colleagues. Where do we sleep? Is that my bed? Is that my desk? Here's the medical wing. There's the canteen. Here's the BBC studio. Just a cupboard, really, from where we were broadcast to the region after the war. Shake hands, unpack your small bag that you've been allowed to bring, and then... The door is closed. So I loved the bunker's eerie emptiness. I loved the vague impression that people were out in the corridor behind us or wandering the floor above us. It felt that the bunker was slowly coming to life. Wandering through the rooms in the bunker, we see the dormitory. The living quarters interested me hugely, of course, because that's where the bunker... That's where you can really feel its horrible purpose. A lot of the rooms in the bunker, or in any bunker of course, are simply offices. They're just desks and chairs and typewriters and paper. Because that is what a bunker is, of course. uh, One meant for civilian staff. 
it's a huge office. It's like a mini town hall where the councillors and the their experts will pile in and try to run the region after nuclear war. So it is really just a large underground office. And so a lot of the rooms, I suppose, are quite boring. They're just offices. They only become fascinating when we stop and imagine what they were built for and what they would have been like had they been used. But the dormitory is obviously fascinating because that's where the people who live who were there would have been living and what kind of night's sleep would you have had down in a bunker? Would the anxiety have kept you awake? Would the lack of fresh air have kept you awake? Would the screams from the nightmares of your colleagues have kept you awake? There's also the fact that you probably didn't even have the, or you probably wouldn't even have had the luxury of your own bed. The dormitory um, would probably have been used on a hotbed basis, so you would have got a bunk, slept there for your allocated, I don't know, eight hours, for example, and then you'd have been up and off to work, up, get dressed quickly, scoot down the corridor and get to work, and someone would have been coming off shift at the same time, and they would have taken your space, they would have jumped into the bunk you just vacated and it would still be warm. Could you get a good night's sleep laying your head on a pillow which is still warm and greasy from the person who just got up? So a million and one reasons why you're not going to have a good night's sleep in a bunker. So we have the dormitory room, it looks very grim of course. We had the medical wing which, if I'm correct, had a mannequin in it. I think it might have had a, a skeleton in it. I'm sorry if I've got that wrong, Hat Green. But there were mannequins throughout the bunker, and I don't like that. I've talked about that before. A lot of bunkers have them. Uh, the one in, that I visited in Budapest was jam-packed with mannequins, and a lot of them were just... They, were, they looked comical. They weren't menacing at all. They looked comical. I think I've actually done a Twitter thread on their expressions on those mannequins' faces in Budapest. So they take away any sense of menace, uh, but again, we can hardly blame museums, bunker museums, for using them because, as we just said, a bunker is really just underground office space, so you need to do something to bring it to life or to tell its story. People like me, or I assume all of us who listen to this podcast wouldn't need mannequins there because we would know the story of these bunkers, but we must remember there are normal people out there in the world who will just be going there for a nice day out with the family and so why not throw a white coat on a on a mannequin and bring to life somewhat your the medical wing of course um, when we talk about the medical wing in a bunker there's not much that a doctor can do for you down there because a doctor rarely works on his own he works if you're talking about an operation or something he's working with a whole team of other people and he's working with machines and specially disinfected surfaces. Can't remember how much of that can you recreate in a bunker. I think really all a bunker doctor needs is a, a whole lot of tranquilizers and a whole lot of uh, painkillers. What else? What else can you do? A bottle of antiseptic, some plasters, some bandages. So we have our dormitory. We have the medical wing. We have the BBC studio. After the bomb is dropped, that is where your local warnings would come from. So your local fallout warnings your local all clear and that is where local instructions and advice would be broadcast from. We see that happening in threads. Um, a, we hear a crackly radio broadcast instructing the citizens, the survivors on where to go if they want to get some food. 
And of course, if they want some food, they have to work for it. All able-bodied citizens, men, women and children should report for reconstruction duties commencing 0800 hours tomorrow morning. The inhabitants of release band F, that is Doran Totley, Abbeydale and Woodseats, now, there was one thing I didn't like down in the bunker, and that was the nuclear shelter experience. As we said, a lot of rooms in a bunker are probably boring. They're offices or their utility rooms or their storerooms for stationary supplies. That would have been their original purpose. And so perhaps Hack Green, when they turned this into a museum, they said, well, we'll take one of these dull, empty rooms and we'll jazz it up a bit by making it a nuclear shelter experience. Now this little room, it does what it says in the tin. It's a tiny dark room and there are uh, benches attached to the wall. You go in, shut the door behind you and you huddle on the bench and you sit there in the darkness. And soon enough, the siren starts to blare. And then the bomb drops and the room is just bombarded with sound. You hear the shockwave hitting, you hear the blast, you hear flames leaping up outside and the room begins to flicker in red. It's a very full-on experience. Uh, Here's what the warning says on the door. I took a picture of it. Nuclear sheltered experience warning. The shelter replicates the effects of sheltering from a nuclear detonation during an attack on the UK. You will experience very loud audio and strong flashing visual effects. If you or anyone in your care have any cardiac, visual or oral impairment, clinical mental issues or or are of a very nervous disposition or as a young child, do not enter the shelter. If in doubt, please request further information from a member of staff. Now, um, (laughs) a lot of those things on that list apply to me. Um, Cardiac issues, I've got a heart murmur, I suppose that might apply. Um, Clinical mental issues and a nervous disposition, well yes, that is me in spades. So, yes, the nuclear shelter experience probably isn't for me, and quite rightly... I hated it. I wasn't even brave enough to go directly into the room. David, my husband, went into the room and sat there. I stood in the doorway with my foot in the door, which you're not supposed to do because the shelter is supposed to be dark and enclosed. You're not meant to have some daft girl standing in the doorway with her foot in the door saying, Oh, I don't like it, David. But um, no one else was down there, so I wasn't spoiling it for anyone else. David went in there. I sat. I stood in the doorway. I heard the siren, but then once the shockwave hit and once the screaming sound of the blast wave approached, I just said no. And I stepped out of the doorway and let the door close and I left David in having a right good sheltered experience. So we know that I was a nervous wreck when we visited Hack Green. But what about David? He's calm and sensible, isn't he? He's not going to get the creeps down there. Why would a bunker scare him? Well, he did. He got a fright. What a baby. I was going to have David tell you about the little scare he got, but he is in bed having an afternoon nap and I don't want to wake him, so I'll tell you. 
Uh, there are lots of rooms in Hack Green, and many of them seemed to be set with those energy-saving lights and switches, meaning they sit there quiet and dark, and when a sensor detects that you've crossed the threshold, they spring into life. Lights go on. But there was one room which had an old teletype machine in it, and that machine was hooked up to the same thing, so it was lying there silently in the dark room. And when David approached, the lights sprang into life suddenly, as did the mad clacking and clashing of the old teletype machine. Then David got afraid. David didn't admit to me that he got afraid. I jumped at my skin, of course, but David just kind of shrugged, like, you know, what's wrong with you? And it was only later <laughs> that he admitted that, yes, down there in the bunker, when there was no one else around, yes, he reluctantly admits... I had to practically force it out of him, but he reluctantly admits that, yes, it was a bit creepy. So you can visit Hat Green. They've reopened. Go and visit and support those who are keeping our Cold War history alive. In the interest of transparency, let me remind you that Hack Green Bunker are patrons of this podcast. But I've given them a fair review, haven't I? I've said quite honestly that I don't like their mannequins and I was scared of their sheltered experience room. But thank you, Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker, who've been patrons of this podcast for quite a while now, long-standing supporters. And thank you to my newest patron, Becca Westby, who signed up this week and who, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, gave me the idea of a Hack Green episode. My other new patrons this week are Jamie McTrusty, Pete Appleby and Brianna. And my long-standing supporter, Andreas Rowland, has increased his monthly donation. So it's been a great week having so many new people join my Patreon and support my podcast. It really does lift my spirits to know there are so many people out there willing to donate some money to the podcast and to fund all my nuclear research. So thank you. If you want to donate each month, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you can choose there how much you donate and you can cancel whenever you like without any hassle. In other news, I've uploaded a couple of new YouTube videos this week. I've neglected the channel recently whilst I've been finishing my book and moving house, but I've recorded two this week. Just search for Atomic Hobo on YouTube. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you all my patrons. I hope you've enjoyed our quick review and quick audio tour of Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. And please do... Tune in again next Sunday when I'll be back with another episode.